I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Welcome to the discomfort practice. You might hear a bit of street noise behind me because I'm actually recording during the daytime from home here in Barcelona, Spain, and I think there's a garbage truck outside just right now. So enjoy the real lifiness of this interview. Yeah, you can hear it. Before, it was uh, South American construction workers on scaffolding nearby playing the radio. So you'll get some flavor. You'll get some flavor. As they say here, like, mucho sabor. So I'm going to introduce my next guest. I'm really pleased to have gotten to know her through a past guest, Jean Callanan, who was chair of the Irish Hospice Foundation. So if you listen to season two, you will remember Jean. But Jane Duncan Rogers joins me today from Scotland. She is the CEO of Before I Go Solutions, which is a CIC, a kick, which we can talk about later. And she's the author of Before I Go, The Essential Guide to Creating a Good End of Life Plan, as well as Gifted by Grief. She's given a TEDx talk called How to Do a Good Death and runs an end-of-life plan facilitators program. So obviously, talking about death is really far from a lot of people's comfort zones. So that's why she's here today to talk about how to do a good death in particular. Jane came to this because she was devastated when her husband died. This was not in their plans. Her greatest fear had come true. She was on her own at the age of 54. And little did she know that three years on, she would have published a book and be doing what she's doing, because how could she be gifted by such a terrible loss? And yet she was. And that's led her directly to what she does now. Her background of 25 years in coaching and training has set her up perfectly to run the not-for-profit she founded in 2016, Before I Go Solutions. We'll put all those links in the show notes, but I encourage you to check it out because it's quite unique. So together with her international team of licensed end-of-life plan facilitators, she offers products and programs to help people complete their end-of-life plans, which it might not surprise you to know. 90% of people say is essential, but only 14% actually do anything about it. And I have to confess I'm one of those people. So it's on my list of energetic loose ends to tie up soon because I realized I have fear of doing it, which we can probably talk about as well. It's very existential. So I'm always happy to talk to anybody in Scotland, as anybody who's listened to this a long time might know. It's where my heart is. It's my adopted home. And we're having this conversation because my focus, particularly in this season, season three of the discomfort practice, is about the discomfort of change and what bigger change than dealing with grief, dealing with a loss of somebody close to you, or contemplating your own death, which is really uncomfortable. But it's one of those things that we really do need to get uncomfortable with and think about and stop avoiding because death has been brought into many of our lives as never before with this pandemic. It's hit close to home for more people than ever thought they would be dealing with grief in the past year and a half. So we need new ways of dealing with things like grief and death. And Jane is a skilled guide on how to do exactly that. So welcome, Jane. Thank you. Wonderful to be here and get the opportunity to talk about this. Yeah, well, <laughs> I warned you about my first question, which is always the same. And it is, what's an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life that drives who you are and what you do in the world? Well, you've mentioned it already because it was when my husband died. And actually, that's nearly 10 years ago now. He was diagnosed with stomach cancer out of the blue in 2010 and just over a year later had died. Now, we were lucky, if you like, in that we had a year to spend together knowing that he might or might not live. We didn't know. So some people would call that lucky because actually, if I look back in it now, that year was probably one of the best years of our 20 year marriage, but it changed my life. Of course it changes your life. You know, any death changes your life. For me, I wouldn't have imagined that I, at the time, that it would lead to what I'm doing now. And that's why I had to call my first book Gifted by Grief. 
So I was just working as a coach, a counsellor, and I thought, you know, I, I, I had to publish this book because it was part of my own healing process and it's very personal. I just thought, well, I'll get probably a few more grief clients from this. But actually what happened was that the, the chapter that I'd written about the questions that I'd asked my husband before he died, that's the one that people responded to. They all said to me, oh, I need to answer those questions as well. And so after about eight people said this in the space of a week, I was like, oh, right, okay. I need to put on a workshop then and help people to answer these questions. And that's basically where it all started. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. And also gifted by grief, just recognizing it. How long did it take you to understand it as a gift? Because obviously grief can be quite a long process. It's not yeah. linear. Yeah. How long did it take to get to that place of being like, I need to write a book about this? I knew that I would always write about it because I had been writing a blog already and I love writing and I love journaling. And so I was already just writing and filling out all my feelings and all that. But I didn't know that I would write and actually publish a proper book, if you like, you know, <laughs> which is what happened. But it became obvious that I needed to honour Philip's life and death by doing this. But I knew fairly early on, I knew that there would be a gift in here somewhere because that's my attitude to life. In the face of any kind of adversity, there will be some kind of hidden. But I tell you, if somebody had given me this book and in the first few months, I would have probably thrown it out the window, frankly, <laughs> because I certainly wasn't willing to think about this as a gift at that point. And I started writing it probably a couple of years after he had died. I trusted that I, I would know when the time was right. And it happened just like it happens in novels. I literally woke up one morning and I thought, oh my goodness, I have to write about this now. And that's what happened. Have a knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to anybody listening to this who's ever been through grief or might be going through grief, it is a process, isn't it? And then you have good moments, you have hard moments, and you still have these moments when you probably can appreciate it as a gift. Was that one of those things that you realized early on because of your outlook on life, because of you know your profession as a coach, or did it take a while to get to that seeing it as a gift? It did take a while because I missed him dreadfully. We hadn't had children, so I was on my own in this house and it was my worst fear that had come true that he would die before me. And I was quite young. Too, I felt I was too young to be an old widow and too old to be a young one. You know, I was 54 when he died, so I didn't find a place for myself. So I didn't think about it as a gift early on at all. That came with the title of the book, I think, really. And now I've forgotten what else you asked me about that. I'm sorry. Oh, just how long did it take you to, no, absolutely answered it. How long did it take you to see it as a gift? But I like that it wasn't until you actually had to pick a title for the book that you've already written that you realized it was a gift. So you sort of retrofitted, ret well, retrospectively understood. We say hindsight is twenty twenty when you see things more clearly. Yeah. And there were little gifts along the way and they're, and they're all in that book. And those were the things that I thought that people would respond to, you know, because there was a considerable amount of change that happened for me around, mostly around, well, what is this death thing? You know, I couldn't, I found it really hard to bear the fact that I didn't know where he was and I didn't even know if he existed any longer. Okay. So let me just rewind a little bit because what happened, I was with him when he died and he was in the hospital and he was doing this taking a breath and then there was a long gap and then another breath. The thing about that is you never know when somebody has actually died until you realize there's no other breath coming, which can be quite a wee while. And but what happened was something shifted in his face. And I've only ever seen one person die before. I've only ever been with one person. But that shift in his face was the difference between him being there and this body being there that looked like him, but it wasn't him. It was so strong that I had to turn away from looking at his face and talking to him, which I had been, and just start talking up to the ceiling because he wasn't there anymore. So I wanted to know where he'd gone. And although I've been like a spiritual seeker most of my life, this took me on a much deeper level, which is what I wrote about basically all the understandings about that. And in a way, that's why it ended up being a gift because of the insights and the revelations that I discovered as a result of him dying. Yeah. I would love to explore that actually, this, this seeking that you went on and what is in the book, because I have to confess, I haven't read it yet because I also have to confess death is a really hard topic for me. 
And I remember going to my first funeral when I was 10. My great-grandmother died and having my, my parents be supportive and hold me by the shoulders in front of the casket. And all I wanted to do was run away. So I have this, this avoidance of it. Yeah. So I have to confess, yes, I haven't been falling over myself to read your book because I have a personal discomfort with it. But this is why I interview people like you because it takes me someplace uncomfortable but necessary. So talk about the book. Okay. What was the, the path you follow in the book? What's in there? What's in there, basically, both he and I in the, this final year had been writing a blog. And so there's excerpts from both of our blogs throughout the book. And it's divided more or less into the year while he had cancer, the first year after he died, and then what happened after that. And it is raw. I've written it in a relatively easy way to read. Lots of people said, oh my God, I had to just keep on reading. And I read it in one sitting in that sort of thing. Wow. Because I write like I talk and I just can't help that. It's just the way it happens. <laughs> so Not a bad thing, Jane. Very fluently. <laughs> anyway, um, basically, I went on a mission to find out what was this thing that is in my body, that is in this body now, I'm touching my body right now, and mm -hmm. that wasn't anymore in Philip's body, that I could see that body lying on the bed was like an empty bag. And that's what I referred to it as. And the weird thing was, you know, Betsy, I felt like I was completely disinterested in that body from that moment onwards. I couldn't refer to it as Philip. I know this is unusual. I know that lots, I haven't hardly met anybody else who feels like this. It was irrelevant to me because it was an empty mm -hmm. bag. Philip had gone off somewhere and I didn't know where he'd gone. So... I had to try and find out, and that led me down a path of exploring all sorts of different uh, spiritual things, but mainly the field of non-duality, or Advaita it's called. And I studied with many different teachers and had different awakenings, I would say, as to, oh my goodness, who we think we are is not who we are at all. And that was actually very instrumental in what I then carried on to do, because I tell you what, when you believe that you're not just a body, it's easier to look at your end of life plans because there is going to be a body left behind once you die and somebody's going to have to do something with it and all sorts of other things, evidence of your life yeah. lived. But it's easier to think about it when you have a belief or a knowledge even that who you are is just inhabiting this body temporarily. Yeah, that really lands for me because that's absolutely what I believe in. I was sitting in a yoga class teaching it last night and at the end of class talking about, you know, just take a moment to appreciate this body that you inhabit right now, that mm -hmm. you are energy, that you are eternal, that you've existed since the beginning of the universe and you will continue to exist in some form even after this body is no longer yours. But it's such a relief, actually, because I grew up in a very, very conservative traditional christian family where it's like this is the one life you've got you've got a soul afterward you go to heaven it's very neat and tidy but it's also i remember feel compulsion of fear as a child of death because if this is all you've got you have to cram everything you're supposed to do and need to do into these you know however many years you've got and it brings a great fear of death because that's the end mm. you know if you didn't make the most of your chance mm -hmm. it's the end it made me quite an overachiever and a very anxious child <laughs> which is great because I achieved a lot early on, but it's been such a relief to, to realize I have this knowing that that is true, that there is, you know, we are all made of pieces of star and bits of the universe from yeah. the beginning of our understanding of time. It's, yeah, it's kind of a relief. Thanks. I think oh. you've just helped prompt me with my own end of life planning. That's good because that's the stuff I thought that people would be interested in reading, but it wasn't. I mean, it really? might have been, but more importantly, were these questions. And the questions were things like, what are your passwords? How do you want your body to be dressed? What kind of coffin do you want? Really practical things. Yeah. And so I just responded to that. And by this point, I felt like life was leading me and I had to just follow. And uh, yeah. I still feel like that, actually. And it's led me in all sorts of places that I wouldn't imagine I was going. But here I am, and, and it all feels like a gift. So that's why I can say I'm grateful for both Philip's life and for his death, because mm. he's still making an impact in this world. I think he would love that. He might yeah. not appreciate the irony of it, that he had to die for it to happen. But a legacy, though. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Probably get a kick out of it. But yeah, I mean... 
just to anyone listening, we will definitely get to talking about what is in an end-of-life plan and sort of the nuts and bolts that probably a lot of people, as you've said, want to hear about. It's just a little bit of a guide because it's stuff that you don't want to think about, you don't know how to think about, and nobody really writes that much guidance on it. So let's just sort of stick with macro for now, though, because obviously bereavement in a global pandemic is a thing that we are going through and there's a lot of collective grief for a lot of things you know the way that we've always lived but genuinely for people who've lost their lives in this pandemic so what impact have you seen that have on your work or people seeking out information on bereavement and end-of-life plans yes it's interesting isn't it i would say now, compared to like three years ago, end-of-life planning or end-of-life plans has become a search term. It wasn't when I first started. So mm. now it's a search term. It's still not very popular, if I put it that way. But so that's one thing. However, I think people can talk about it a bit more, but it's not necessarily that talking doesn't necessarily translate into action, which is what mm. we're all about, is helping people actually take the action. because. There's too many instances of somebody dies and the family is left, different family members are left remembering different things. That can be really, really difficult. Because one of the things about grief is that until it's happened to you, that somebody very close to you has died, you don't understand how totally discombobulating it is. And that affects everything, your thinking, your ideas, your decisions, your ability to do any of those things. However, the other thing that happened is that I heard this uh, statistic from several different lawyers and they were all saying more or less the same thing, which is that particularly in the first summer of the pandemic, and there was a huge increase, about 78 or 80% of people wanting to make wills, which is mm. understandable. You would think that, but actually only a quarter of those people actually followed through and did them. And that's like, oh, okay, so we're back here again to the fact mm -hmm. that this is di a difficult, even if you get started talking about these things or thinking about it, actually getting it done or completing that will or completing that power of attorney or completing your thoughts about how you would like your end of life to be, that's not so easy, the actual doing of it and completion of it. And that's where we come in, of course. Is that partly because it's so uncomfortable or is it because it's just so not something we've ever done or a combination of things? I think it's probably a combination. A lot of it makes completely common sense once people understand that there's quite a lot to this end of life business. But in order to get mm -hmm. to that point, they have to be willing to face up to the fact that we're actually going to die, you know, and most people in the Western world don't want to do that. So even though they can say it, maybe logically or they can understand that this is the one certainty in an uncertain life people still don't want to know about it yeah i was going to ask about that about sort of our relationship with bereavement and mortality in western society in particular because we do often have this sort of judeo-christian idea that you get one you get one chance so it's just so final and it's not talked about. Yeah, the way we grieve, the way we approach grief, the way we refuse to think about grief seems very cultural. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that or what are your observations on that? Yeah, I think so. I think that if somebody follows or belongs to a religious tradition, there will almost definitely be prescriptive things that need to happen around about death and dying and bereavement. Now, that can be an incredible comfort because you know what to do, if you like. And everybody rituals exactly yeah. everybody around you knows what to do but there's many people i would say and mostly i'm working with people in the uk and the usa who don't have a strong belief if you don't have a strong belief then anything can happen <laughs> if you like mm -hmm. but what actually yeah. happens is that we get shocked by the fact that somebody has actually died even if we knew they were going to die it's still a shock and it is a shock that's understandable but if we haven't prepared, then we're catapulted into, oh, well, okay, what do you do now? Well, you get a funeral director. Now, I wrote an article about this just the other day. There's nowhere else where you would engage somebody for several thousands of dollars or pounds or whatever it is, where you would just pick the phone up or choose somebody out of the internet just like that without getting mm -hmm. several different quotes. But that's what happens with a funeral director because we haven't planned in advance. So my article was about inviting people to consider getting a funeral director going and having a visit with them while you're healthy, you know, yeah. 
and uh, chatting to them and finding out what do they do and discovering if you like their particular firm or whatever so that you can put that little nugget down in your end of life plan that you know you prefer this particular firm one decision made mm. that people left behind don't have to make i've forgotten where i'm going with that now sorry <laughs> <laughs> absolutely no i think you took it to a nice conclusion but yeah it is sort of that we don't like to think about it in our culture i suppose no. and so we don't plan for it no but i i like your point about wow we we don't sort of think ahead about a funeral director, this person who's going to be conducting a very important piece of your life. And you just go, I don't want to think about it. And nor does anyone else who's left behind usually. No. So they just kind of go, let's outsource that to this perfect stranger who might or might not be a great fit for us. That's a really interesting point that I hadn't thought of actually. Yeah. So just a few weeks ago, a friend of mine had died, not a close friend, but I knew her and she knew that she was going to die. She had cancer and she had got together with another very close friend of hers and they had flown by her thing. Now, when we went to the celebration of her life, let's call it, because it didn't feel like a funeral, her body had, was, she had died in Germany and we were celebrating her life in Scotland. It was incredibly comforting to know that she had been involved in what we were now doing. Now, that was an unexpected benefit, you know. It's to do with knowing that that person knew that we were going to do it while she was still alive. It was lovely, really lovely. <sighs> So I suppose existentially, you felt like she was kind of there with you. Exactly. Were exactly. Doing it on her behalf. Oh, that's yeah. beautiful. That's a really beautiful point. And as well as being a really good incentive to do your end of life planning with the people you love well ahead of time before you actually need to do it. Ideally, it sounds like that's exactly. there's a timing element here. Yeah. Rather than wait till you absolutely have to. Yeah. Mm. Because I suppose, I mean, part of why we're having this conversation, it's an, an uncomfortable thing. So it is definitely part of a discomfort practice. But just mortality has been parked on our doorstep in so many ways as never before with a global pandemic. You know, I know fairly young people who have been hospitalized and nearly died or, you know, unexpected deaths of family members. I've, I lost a family member in the U.S. And it was definitely not something anybody saw coming. You know, he was a, a man in his 60s, mm. but just healthy, non-smoker. You know, it's surprised a lot of people. So just as a culture, we're having to grapple with our own mortality and yeah. bereavement in a way that we haven't. I know I referenced that already, but I'm just wondering what you would say is the benefit for us to move forward, to actually improve our lives and our relationships and our society by actually thinking ahead about bereavement, by being more comfortable with it. What is the benefit of that? Well, um, I, I think about it in two ways. First of all, I've always believed since I was a little girl that death would be a big adventure. And my way of thinking about it, even when I was 10, was like, well, if there's nothing, then I won't know about it, so it won't matter. Or if there's something, I might as well believe it's going to be wonderful and even better than here because why not sort of thing. And I kind of still believe that because we don't know mm. not really. Who's to say? Yeah, exactly. But there's another thing, which is, and I discovered this in the course of my work, and this was a quote by somebody. Now, let's see if I can find it. Yes, it's from uh, the Buddha, I think it is. Yeah, where I can't quite see it at the moment, but never mind. It's about... <laughs> you can find it. We can take a little pause. Let's see if I can find it. Yes, Such here we are. Okay, so the quote is, Buddha said that everything that has a beginning has an end. Make your peace with that and all will be well. So mm. how I think about that is it's the boundaries. So we've got a boundary where we start. So then we've got another boundary where we come to an end. And we know what boundaries are like with small children. You know, they need boundaries in order to feel safe and to fully explore the wonderful life that they have. Mm. And actually, that applies to us in a much wider sense, if you think about it like this. But when we don't think about it, when we don't look at the far end, we're stuck in a place of fear in living our lives. Whereas this is the hidden benefit, if you like, the gift in plain sight. If you're willing to face the end, and you can do that by doing this very practical work, it actually transports you back into life in a more full way than you ever would have thought before. Because you're able to go Okay, I've taken care of that now. I don't need to do any more. Okay, maybe you'll update things, obviously, but the main pieces are there. And it actually is very liberating, very liberating. 
And I suppose you experienced that firsthand with your husband because you knew that he was going to die. And you talked about earlier how that final period you spent together was the best of your 20 years of marriage. Yeah. Would you be up for talking about that and just talking yeah. about yeah. the freedom and the richness and the closeness that you experienced knowing that there was an end coming? Yeah. Yeah, well, my goodness, there's nothing like that to make you appreciate what you have got. My goodness. I mean, mm. it's a pretty hard way to learn that lesson, but that is what happened. And it didn't mean that we didn't have loads of rows anyway, but, you know, and sometimes we got irritated with each other, but it was like it was really easy to just catch ourselves on at that point and go, hang on a minute, we might not be able to do this. Well, I did that. I don't know if he did that. Inside myself, I was willing to look past things that would have irritated me before because he was here and he was alive mm. and there was a poignancy about it I must say and our feelings were strong and raw and there was a lot of tears of course but he had been struggling in his life in various different ways up until this point but he used this kick up the pants if you like to really change and change his outlook on life and and so actually I think he became a lot happier than he had been and he didn't want to die though I have to say he did not want to die and even a few days beforehand he said to me you know I don't want to die I've still got things to do now mm -hmm. he was still I think really in denial about the extent of his um, body at that stage because I was aware that this was the end there's no doubt about it but by that point, I just wanted him to be free of suffering. So I wanted him to die at that point because mm. when you love somebody, you can't bear to see them suffer. And, and it didn't matter about how I would feel afterwards because I knew this was going to happen anyway. So it might as well happen sooner than later sort of thing. I know that sounds a bit sort of crude, but I'm sure people who have been in this situation will understand that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's what I was thinking. It's when you really love someone, you don't want to watch them suffer, but it's interesting because it keeps occurring to me that, that concept that you've touched on about freedom, there being a freedom in knowing that the end is coming and you want someone to be free from pain and there can actually be a really raw beauty to it. Mm. And to think that a lot of us are in, you know, relationships and we don't know when they're going to end. We don't know when someone's life is going to end, but that gift of knowing there's an end and making the most of every moment you've got is really poignant, really beautiful. And just thinking about that, I'm sort of digesting this. And, and I imagine anybody listening to it is hopefully as well about just think about the relationships you're in now, friendships, partnerships, whatever. If you knew the date that they were going to be over or the rough period, the timeline, you knew for certain it was going to be over and you weren't going to see that person anymore. How would you live now? And I think that is such a beautiful concept to try to bring into everyday life, which I suppose is also something that doing end-of-life planning does bring you that awareness that there will be an end. And yeah. acknowledging that can really make what you've got left quite beautiful. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, that phrase raw beauty, you're absolutely right. And, you know, just, just fast forward a little bit because I did meet another man and also his wife had died. And so our mm. first few dates were all talking about death, <laughs> but it was great. It was romantic. <laughs> I know it sounds a bit odd, but we both got to talk a lot about the person that we had loved and it was perfectly fine. That was mm. really wonderful because I know not everybody has that, it, you know, not everybody can manage to relate like that. But anyway, um, one of the things that's happened, so we did get married again last year in, in between lockdowns with a very tight Congratulations, in between lockdowns. Oh yeah, because in Scotland, your lockdown was intense. You couldn't gather with anyone indoors, yeah, right? That's right. But it was fine. And we've been together six years. And one of the things is that we are both genuinely grateful for each other at the end of each day and quite often in the mornings, mostly at the end of the day. And it's because we've lost somebody precious. You know, and that's a high price to pay to, and I mean, you know, everybody bangs on about it, about how important it is to be grateful. And yet I used to do that too. And I know it is, but when you've lost something very precious, then it really makes you appreciate what you do have right now. 
It just tears something open inside of you, doesn't it? Grief is so primal and so deep. And as you said, so discombobulating. It just throws everything on its head. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And I think also I remember thinking that in the sort of three years after Philip had died, I remember being aware that I perhaps had not completely and wholeheartedly opened myself in that marriage as much as I could have done. Well, I didn't know that I was doing that, but looking back, this is before I met my, my new husband and I promised myself that if I had the opportunity to meet somebody again, I was going to live life with a whole open heart. That was a bit of a challenge, I can tell you, but, but I'm doing it. <laughs> and it makes a big difference. It really makes a big difference. Mm, so grief as an invitation to really be vulnerable and open yourself because you could go two directions with that, right? You could think I'm never going to do this again. So I'm just going to close it down, never get romantically involved, never risk losing someone again. But instead it, it, it broadened you. It broke something down so that you could expand. And Yeah, well, I did make a conscious choice about that. I made a conscious choice and then I had to put it into practice. And I can remember, because I, I don't have to do that anymore, but at the beginning, I could feel my heart closing down at certain points and I had to go away and take care of it and let myself open up again. And, and I just did that for as long as it took to do. Mm. I'm so glad. That's a really good point about just taking time. Actually, for anybody who's experiencing or has experienced grief, bereavement, and also thinking about, you know, getting back to living a full life again, give yourself time. Don't rush it. Let yourself take whatever time it takes, but don't let yourself shut down. I think that's a really beautiful message because I think that would be so easy to do. And not just from, you know, bereavement to having lost somebody. I think if you've been betrayed or burned or, you know, had a great disappointment in your life or been divorced. I mean, divorce is, my mother said, getting divorced is like a death without a body in some ways. Yeah, like, absolutely. I agree. They're still out there somewhere. But everything you thought your life was going to be and everything you thought your life was going to be with that person. Because I, I went through a divorce and it, yeah, it is disorienting. And everything you thought about relationships is like, wow, that, how can I ever trust myself again? Because I lost this thing that I thought was going to go a certain way. So, I mean, if anybody's gone through a divorce, it is appreciated as a grief. Mm. It's a great loss. It's a great loss. So, so yeah, you look like you've got something to add. There's just something there about the difference between bereavement and grief, because grief is a response to loss and there's all sorts of losses. And we've seen evidence of a lot of them during the pandemic, of course, different types of losses, whereas bereavement is somebody who actually dies. So then you're and then you're bereaved. So just a little definition there, I think that is helpful. Yeah, it's a very useful differentiation. Definitely. Well, OK, so let's talk about some the logistics, the nitty gritty that people really value and, and that we're definitely not going to leave out here because it is so valuable. Mm -hmm. What is an end of life plan and what elements in it are important to consider? Okay. So most people know about wills and most people know about funerals. And then they think if they've got a will and they've got a funeral plan, then they're done and that's fine. And of course, that's a lot better than nothing. But I divide it into the legals, which includes the will and then your powers of attorney, which is the people that you appoint speak for you or to act on your behalf if you can't. Very, very important when people are living longer, but not in such good health, which is what's mm. happening at the moment. And then in some countries, the Advanced Healthcare Directive, which is in Scotland, it's called an Advanced Directive. In England, it's called an Advanced Decision. I don't know what it's called in Spain, but there will be something like that. It's the document that states what kind of treatment that you don't want to receive if you mm. can't speak for yourself. So some people would know it as a living will. That's more and more mm -hmm. important as well as these, as we live longer, but still not in such good health, as I said. So those are the legals. In some countries, that last one is not a legal document, but that just depends. You have to check that out for yourself. Definitely. Yeah. And then there's the funeral. Now, lots of people don't know that you don't have to have a funeral if you don't want. You, there, but if you don't want to have a funeral, you have to recognize that there's still a body that has to be disposed of. And so how are you going to do that? Some people want to do that all by themselves, which they can do mostly in most countries, but you need to know in advance because you're not going to be doing this if you haven't planned it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And even if you are going to have a funeral, there's loads of things. I think I've got a flyer about, you know, 25 questions to think about when you're planning a funeral. You know, it's like 
you wouldn't dream of planning a wedding with having your long list of things, you know, so you need that for your funeral as well. So those two areas, but the other areas are advanced care planning and that really how it is that you want to be living your life towards the end when you will, your body won't be as strong. You will be more frail. Do you want to plan your home in the best way possible so you can live there for as long as possible? That's just one example. And then your last day's wishes. How would you like that to be? What's important to you? All that kind of stuff. And then we have our digital lives because we're going to live on digitally unless we take care of it beforehand. And that can be a good thing or not such a good thing. But again, it's a conscious decision to make. So I saw this after my husband died, just three months later in our family, we had another tragedy because his granddaughter, 16 year old granddaughter also died of cancer. I mean, 16 years old, for goodness sake. Now at that time, the young ones were on Facebook and although Philip's Facebook page had been closed down pretty quickly, hers was kept up like a memorial page. And I could see that people really liked that, Mm -hmm. but this is a thing that has to be made conscious, you know, a conscious decision. And also now, that was 10 years ago, now it's like, well, okay, so what's going to happen to all my photographs that I've uploaded to this, that, or the next site or whatever. These are decisions that have to be thought about. So it's kind of like you have a digital will or a digital legacy. And then we have the household. So what you can do right now, anybody who's listening, is just look around your room and have a look at all the stuff and think, well, if I wasn't here any longer, Who's going to take care of all this? Who's going to get this, that, or the next thing? Who's going to make sure that the house is cleared or whatever? So some people call that death cleaning. If you do it in advance, it's really just decluttering towards the end of your life. But the other thing is, how does your household run? Like one of the things that was really difficult for me after Philip had died was I didn't know how to operate the telly. I mean, that sounds ridiculous day and age, doesn't it? But the thing is, somebody had been visiting. They'd obviously been watching the telly, I switched it on and it didn't come to the page that I was used to and I couldn't get it to go there. And I was so upset. I was utterly distraught because he would have sorted that and Um, I couldn't cope. And all it would have taken would have been a little lesson beforehand or a little, you know, a few steps written down about what to do. Because of course I looked up the manual, the manual was enormous. Yeah, but they're also little reminders of your bereavement, aren't they? Those little, it's almost like landmines you step on and you never see them coming where you're like, oh no, I, I just want to watch TV. And suddenly I remember that I don't have this person here anymore. Yeah, I know, I know. it's horrible. And then there's one other area, which is what I call your living legacy. Because while you're alive and you're healthy, you're creating your legacy, maybe or maybe not. But that's something to think about. Is there something that you particularly would like to be remembered for? Is there a way that you would like to be remembered? You know, would you like to create a video of yourself leaving messages or creating a dance or singing or whatever for those coming after you to listen to? Mm -hmm. It does require planning. (laughs) Yeah, when you're in decent health as well, you probably want to leave behind a video of you looking the way you want people to remember you rather than you having wasted away from cancer or whatever. Exactly. Mm. And then all of these things, usually they have to be talked about amongst the family. It's definitely the best to do that because that takes care of any surprises. And actually talking of surprises, here's something that people usually don't think about. Have you got any secrets that you would rather not come out as a secret after you've died? (laughs) Because if you've got secrets, you need to take care of the evidence. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, it's like a telenovela if you think about it. All sorts of things could crop up at your funeral or on your doorstep to your loved ones. Yeah, that's right. So bearing that in mind, I burnt loads of my journals just, I think it was last year, because I realized that up until a certain point, probably I haven't got any kids, so probably nobody was going to read them, but I didn't know. And when I look back at them, you know, they're full of my teenage angst and my 20s, 30s and 40s angst. (laughs) Nobody needed to read that, you know. Um, Anyway. Yeah. And then once you've talked about it all, you need to get stuff documented. That's really important. And it's that whole process that we help people with because clearly people need some help with it because they're not doing it. That statistic at the beginning told us that. 
And yet mm -hmm. the, the benefits for those coming off are huge, absolutely huge. So it is a selfless act because you're not going to be around to, uh, to appreciate their appreciation. <laughs> but it has benefits beforehand, as, as we talked about. So, Yeah, because I've thought about this as somebody who live very far from my family. They're all in all over the United States, but, you know, my sort of aging parents in Wyoming and here I am in a system where I don't even know how you do death in Spain. I don't know how you have to register things. I don't know how you would get a body taken care of. And it, it, it makes me a little panicky because I realize it, it is quite selfish to not have planned because if anything were to happen to me, it's an awful lot to have to figure out by people who don't speak the language and don't know the system here or you know, people who aren't related to me. I'm unmarried. I live alone. You know, it's a lot to think about. And it's easier if you're thinking it's just easier to avoid thinking about that. I'm with you. Yeah. But what we're talking about today is actually, it's a great act of freeing yourself to yeah. not have to worry about it. So you can get on with living your life, but also appreciating yeah. your life. And however long you've got left, if you're in good health, like I am great, yeah. but you can just be at ease that it's not going to be really painful to somebody if suddenly something happens or it's suddenly something you have to do while in ill health because that doesn't sound like a lot of fun either if you're no, no. having to go through treatments or whatever and, and trying to deal with all of it. So it sounds like, I'm imagining your advice would be, do this when you don't even need to be thinking about it. Do it while you're in good health, if yeah. possible, while you're not going through an illness, you're not going through being freaked out, trying to figure out how to deal with your final days. Do it now. Exactly. Because it's going to make your life better. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, you know, that all makes complete common sense and everybody agrees and then they go off and do nothing. <laughs> Why do you think people don't do it? Is it that whole avoidance of it or is it just that it's a non-urgent task that you don't talk about every day? Why do you think people avoid it? Well, just don't do it. For some people, the fear comes up, you know, and they can't cope with that. And, and that can be fear of all sorts of things, not just of the end, but of you know, the actual dying process and what's it going to be like and, and don't know. And anything where we're uncertain about something can often bring a bit of fear. And, you know, even people who have had near-death experiences and say, come back and say to us, it's going to be like this. We don't know for sure that it's, it's going to happen like that for me. <laughs> so there's that. But there's also, you know, the common sort of reasons that people give for not doing this is, well, I haven't got any time. You know, it's life got in the way. It's just on my priority list, but it's down at number 10 or something like that, you know. So I like one of the things that I say is, well, look, you have to just take it a little bit at a time. So, for example, in the workbook that is now the extension of the original questions that I asked my husband, I'd say, just pick one question and do one every week or one a day or something like that. Or we just recently brought out some end of life planning cards and that makes the whole thing easier because you can uh, sort them all out because some of the things you will know and you can sort it all, sort it all out and then you're left with the things that you really do have to deal with and then you can mm. play a game with it. You just pick a card every day and decide, okay, I'm going to think about that today. Or, okay, I know the answer to that. I'll put it down in writing somewhere or whatever. This is a great thing to do at the beginning of the year. I mean, yeah, yeah. start of 2022, spend January playing the game. I'll put the information on your cards, on all of these things in the show notes, because it's an immensely helpful resource. There's a resource out there, folks. It exists. You don't have to think of all of these things on your own. There's a no. guide to help you. Yeah, I think that's immensely helpful to know. And it's actually something I'm going to commit out loud to doing myself, working through this, give myself a couple months to do it so it doesn't feel rushed because it is, there will be emotion involved. It will be stressful. And we can make our excuses that life gets in the way, which is a highly ironic thing to say, but it's always, life can always get in the way of something we don't want to do. <laughs> yeah. So just give yourself a deadline. I think that's a really helpful, just do it. Just And be aware of all the puns there are around deaths. Like a deadline, you know, a deadline talking about death. <laughs> There's a lot yeah, of black humor around this, and I tell you, I mean, it's easier to have black humor whenever you're not actually ill. Although, I must say, when we had heard about Philip dying, uh, when we had heard about Philip being diagnosed, I was ringing around the family just to tell them, and I rang my brother and, you know, told him what was happening. And towards the end of the call, he said, I, I'd, I'd explained that Philip had had stomach cancer, had been diagnosed with stomach cancer. And my brother said, well, Think of it this way. At least the food bills will go down. Oh. 
oh my god oh my god I mean what a thing to say and yet I find it so funny you know and I recognize that that was his way of trying to deal with the discomfort you know yeah and that was okay by me because he was right the food bills would go down <laughs> oh my god we talk about gallows humor it's sort of the yeah. yeah when you know the end is nigh what else can you do you can just sit in that extraordinary discomfort or you can just be like let's tell stupid jokes <laughs> yeah because huh. i suppose it brings out the best and the worst in people yeah. knowing that there's about to be a lot of like uncomfortable moments physically potentially but also in your relationships existentially you know the idea of not being here anymore is super uncomfortable yeah but yeah i mean what have you observed about how it does bring out some of the best and maybe the worst moments for people knowing that there is an end coming well the only things that matter in the end really are the the relationships you have with those that you love and actually that is one of the things that philip said right I think it was probably about the second or third day before he died. He just said, love is the answer. You know, it's like mm -hmm. he came out with this phrase, which everybody knows that phrase, but it was like, oh, right. Okay. That's a bit of wisdom from somebody who's right near the end. And that's true. You know, when your life is short, mm -hmm. then you are not going to focus on the little things that cause problems. It just feels like a waste of time. So we come back to what we were talking about before and people realize that it is love that is important and it is how you relate to your loved ones. And of course, there's some distress involved if you think, oh my God, I can't bear to leave them behind or whatever, or I can't bear to be without that person. We can't have life without death. They go together. We just have to accept that, you know? You wouldn't be born if you hadn't died or if you believe in reincarnation, that's the way it goes. But if, if you are born, then you're definitely going to die. That is just going to happen. <laughs> and I love that what lies underneath that is actually love. Yeah. That not being able to bear the idea of being without someone, of their dying, is actually really beautiful. So I think it's one of those moments that I actually think you can kind of be cliched and say lean into that discomfort because it allows you to uncover the things that you really love and then to prioritize them. So I think. This is the perfect time of year to be talking about this sort of tidy New Year's resolutions, all that stuff to also use it as an exercise to realize what you really love and care about and to do as good a job as you can at appreciating those things yeah. and building systems that support you spending time with those people and those things because you start to realize when you have to just come face to face with the fact that you are going to die at some point, the people you love are going to die. It just makes you want to love the shit out of them in the meantime. Yes, exactly. You know? exactly. It does. It's really quite beautiful. Yeah. I love that actually. Yeah. 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 But it's the sun rises, the sun sets on all of us. And just getting our heads around that is a gift to ourselves because it also probably impacts the way we live our lives, the way we impact the world around us. When you realize like, how do you want to be remembered? Yeah. What do you want your legacy video to be? What's your parting message to the world? What do you want people to remember about you? Yeah. That flavors how you live so much. It's really powerful. Yeah, yeah, it does. And you have some input in that. If you're willing to face up to the fact before it actually happens, you can influence mm -hmm. that. And that can bring you comfort and it can bring the people afterwards a great deal of comfort as well. I think we're sort of drawing to a very natural conclusion because where I kind of hoped this would bring us is actually what I'm going to say next, which is it brings us into a consideration of how, well, legacy, we've already talked about that, but sort of how can you be a good ancestor? How can you be a good member of making society and this planet a better place as you think about how you're going to leave the, this earth? You know, what's the celebration of your life going to be, but also what's the life you're living that you want to be celebrated? What's worth celebrating? And make sure you're living a life that can be celebrated, that you want to leave behind and think, I did my best there. Yeah. I thought about it. I was conscious. I was loving. I was not destructive or unconscious. I didn't do crappy things to the planet or other people. And I think that's, that's what I would really like. I do have an agenda in this chat, obviously, but any final thoughts you would like to leave people with? Obviously, we'll leave all of your information in the show notes here. 
website, your information, your book, but is there anything you'd like to leave people with? Well, you know, I'm on a mission to have end of life plans be as commonplace as birth plans. And that means that if that, when that happens, it may or may not happen in my lifetime, but when that happens, then there will be no need for organizations like mine because this will just happen. And so that's what I'm inviting the listeners to do. If you do anything at all about your end of life plan and you answer just one question, you're contributing to a major cultural change in our society, which has got to be healthy for everybody, which is pretty good, I think. <laughs> I love that. And it's a culture change for us. And it's one that we need. Yeah. Ah, uh, Jane, thank you so much for your time and for your just really open, beautiful and loving sharing of your own story and where it's brought you. and also for what you want it to help other people with, because that's big in supporting people in a very uncomfortable topic to make it as comfortable and as loving as possible. And I think a lot of people listening are probably going to be thinking about this and I would urge them to then do something about it. Create an end of life plan, work with your loved ones to create end of life plans, work with your parents if they're still around and uh, yeah, keep it in mind and create that culture shift so that we can change the way we deal with grief and bereavement and can create as much comfort as possible, I guess. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts, leave me a five-star and written review, and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast and for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable.